Good morning, and welcome to New Franklin Assembly. We're so glad that you chose to join us this morning. Our church is located at 2355 New Franklin Road, Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, 17202. Today, Pastor James will be continuing his sermon series entitled, Fasting Is. Today's message is titled, A Renouncing of the Natural to Invoke the Supernatural. Amen. Well, let me get started. We are in week number two of our January fast. Um, second full week, we've completed our second full week of our fast. I trust and hope everyone has spent some time this week praying and fasting. Uh, if you've not, it's not too late to start. Uh, two weeks ago, we put out a, a pamphlet that will help you perhaps uh, in your fast. It basically lists scriptures on the types of fasts you can engage in and the reasons to fast. Uh, I've called us to pray and fast for the state of the church across our nation. Um, you know, I believe the state of the church needs, I, mean, I believe the church needs to grow stronger in God's word and God's ways. Not that there's, there's not strong Christians out there, strong in their faith. I believe there's a remnant of Christians who are strong in their faith and looking to grow even stronger still and trying to advance God's kingdom. I believe we're a part of that remnant. Um, but I also believe that we can get better, not just us, but across this nation, uh, that the church once again can be, uh, not just should be, but I believe the church across our nation can be the major influence in our society again. Uh, in generations past, the church was the major influence in our nation. Uh, it's no longer that way, but I believe that God is going to return us to that. Not that he's going to return us to the past, but he's going to bring us to an, a place, bring the church to a place where the church is once again a major influence in our country and in our nation. Uh, I believe it's going to happen with revival and a great awakening that's going to sweep across this land. Uh, but prayer and fasting has always birthed revival. Prayer and fasting has always premised a great awakening. And so you may choose to fast one day a week. Uh, you may choose to fast one meal a day. You may choose to fast several days a week um, or a combination of the uh, of the of the of the three or something uh, you, you you know I told you some people ask can we fast something other than food I believe you can uh, you want to fast caffeine uh, fast caffeine you want to fast TV or social media go ahead and do that but when we look to the scriptures fasting is typically uh, food uh, and the reason for that is because uh, there's nothing more natural to the body than food your, your body needs food and if we can abstain from food, last week I gave you a definition for, for, for uh, 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 fasting. It's, it's, it's um, to abstain from something, abstain for, from food for spiritual purposes. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that uh, today anyway. But I want to continue the series that we started last week. The title to this month's sermon series is simply Fasting Is fasting is. Again, two definitions I gave you last week. Voluntarily abstaining from food for spiritual purposes. That's a good one. It's general definition. But the one I really like and, uh, you know, is, was, uh, 
I was listening to a pastor friend of mine, and, and he happened to mention it. He didn't even give it as a definition. He was just kind of rambling. Uh, and so how many know pastors? Sometimes they ramble, and they don't know what they're saying. I, yeah. But, you know, he was just rambling, and I, and I caught it, and I said, ooh, that's good. And I took it. And he says, <laughs> fasting is a disciplining yourself away from the cravings of the flesh. Disciplining yourself away from the cravings of the flesh. Today's message has uh, uh, to do a little bit with, with that definition. The title to today's message is this, a renouncing of the natural to invoke the supernatural. It's a little bit lengthy, but you get the point. A renouncing of the natural to invoke the supernatural. When we can separate ourselves from, from something as natural to the body as food, then we can separate ourselves away from the natural cravings of our sinful flesh. I've learned that fasting breaks the hold that the world has on us. It helps us limit our exposure to the world. When I'm fasting, it becomes easier for me to limit my time on social media. It becomes easier for me to limit what I watch on TV. I haven't watched news in a couple of months. Uh, it be, has become easier for me to limit how much I care for the things of this world versus the things of God. And as I separate myself from the things of this world, I grow closer to the supernatural things of God. And that's what I really want to do. The word supernatural is a great word now, isn't it? We all want to experience the supernatural power of God in our lives and in the lives of our loved ones, and in our great country of ours. But what is the supernatural power of God for? Why do we want the supernatural power of God? I believe the supernatural power of God displayed in the world is for one purpose and one purpose alone. It's to help people become victorious over the enemy, to help people become victorious over sin and sin's effects. The book of Acts tells us that miraculous signs and wonders accompanied the apostles to confirm the word that was being preached. So in other words, the healing was not just to make that sick person well. It was to lead everyone around him to Christ. It was to confirm the word that was being preached. The miracle brought people to salvation. And salvation really is the ultimate victory over sin now, isn't it? Every time we read in the scriptures about the supernatural power of God being displayed, for the, it is for the sole purpose of God's people, whether it's a person or God's people, receiving victory over the enemy in some way, shape, or form. And so when I say fasting is a renouncing of the natural to invoke the supernatural, I am saying that fasting is a key to overcoming the enemy in our lives and in our church and in our community and in our nation. And so I want us to look at 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Now we're going to be in this chapter, actually the, the four chapters, 17, 18, 19, and 20. We're going to read a lot of scripture today because it's not a very familiar portion of scripture, so I'm going to kind of refer to it a lot and go to it. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open. I have some of the scriptures on the screen for you to follow, but there's some that are just too long, and I'll just read it. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Second Chronicles chapter 20, and we'll be in those few chapters there. 
2 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 1 through 4 says this. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites with some of the Meunites came to make war on Jehoshaphat. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the sea. It is already in Hazazon uh, Tamar, that is in Gedi. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all of Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. So, here we see that Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, called for a national fast for protection and for victory over the enemy that was coming against the people of God. But there's more to it than this. As I looked at this scripture in its context, I saw something to me was pretty interesting. It, you know, every time I get deep into the Bible, it's because I, 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 I saw something and, I, and I, I had a question. I had a question as I looked at this, and, and it caused me to, to get really interested in, and seek out the answer. And that's what I'm going to lead you through today. This story takes place before the Babylonian captivity. You know, we need to know where in, in the Israel's history this takes place for us to understand it. Remember last week we talked about Ezra. Now, Ezra led a remnant of Jews back to Jerusalem many, many years after Jerusalem was destroyed and, and the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he defeated Israel and took all of the Israelites captive, destroyed Jerusalem. They weren't able to live there and took them. And then the Persian Empire, many years later, defeats the Babylonian Empire. So the Israelites find themselves under the Persian Empire, and the Persian king allows then, many years later, a remnant of Jews to go back to Jerusalem to start rebuilding Jerusalem. Well, that's many years, many years after this. Israel is still basically a nation, but things are not the greatest. You see, there was, after King Saul, there was King David, and after King David, there was King Solomon. Now, when Solomon died, the nation kind of had this civil war, and they split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom consisted of 10 of the 12 tribes, and the southern kingdom consisted of two of the 12 tribes. We know that Israel consists of 12 tribes. It's the 12 sons of Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, 12 tribes of Israel. Well, 10 of the 12 tribes are the northern kingdom. They continue to call themselves Israel, but they don't live in Jerusalem. The two of the 12 tribes are called Judah. They do live in Jerusalem. Fortified city, the, 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 the temple that Solomon built is still there, that kind of thing. So there's, in a sense, two kingdoms, northern and southern. Now, each of these two kingdoms has a series of kings after Solomon. And it's this, Israel has king after king after king after king, and Judah has king after king after king after king. All of these kings are listed for us in the Bible in the book of what? Kings. That's what the book of Kings is. At this point in their history, the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, they are living in sin. They had a sinful king named Ahab. How many know who Ahab's wife is? Jezebel. All right, we know about Jezebel. 
Well, Jezebel basically controlled her, king, her, her husband, the king, and, and, and they were just an, uh, very sinful. They, they, under their reign, all kinds of idol worship was encouraged, including the, uh, the worship of Baal. And so when we, refer, when we refer to Israel at this time in, in the story, Israel are the bad guys. I know that's hard to understand because we always talk about Israel as the good guys. But now it's the Israel in the northern kingdom and Judah, the southern kingdom. So when we refer to Israel, we're referring to, the, in a sense, the bad guys. The southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, had continued to obey the words and ways of God. And they had a godly king named Jehoshaphat. 2 Chronicles 17 tells us that Jehoshaphat followed in the ways of his father David, or King David, and he was pleasing to the Lord, and God blessed him and blessed the Judah because of it, prospered them and protected them. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 17, verses 10 through 11, it says this, The fear of the Lord fell on all of the kingdoms of the lands surrounding Judah, so they did not make war with Jehoshaphat. Some Philistines even brought Jehoshaphat gifts and silver as tribute. And the Arabs brought him flocks, 7,700 rams and 7,700 goats. Now, I found this very interesting. It caused a question in me. In chapter 17, that verse we just read, it says that no surrounding kingdoms would dare come against Jehoshaphat and the kingdom of Judah because God's blessing was on them. No one, matter of fact, they went out of their way to make peace with Jehoshaphat because God's blessing was upon him. But then in chapter 20, the verses we read just a few minutes ago, it says that they... Some, some Moabites and Meonites and Ammonites, they came to make war with Jehoshaphat. You see, what took place between chapter 17 and chapter 20? What changed? Why all of a sudden did these people feel confident enough to come against God's people where just a short time before, no one dared come against him? I found that curious. You see, it's just three chapters from 17 to 20. Well, let's read a little bit of chapter 18. 2 Chronicles 18, verses 1 through 4 says this. Now Jehoshaphat had great wealth and honor. It's because the Lord blessed him. And he allied himself with Ahab by marriage. Some years later, he went down to visit Ahab in Samaria. Ahab slaughtered many sheep and cattle for him and the people with him and, uh, and urged him to attack Ramoth-Gilead. Ahab, king of Israel, asked Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, will you go with me against Ramoth-Gilead? Jehoshaphat replied, I am as you are and my people as your people. We will join you in war. But Jehoshaphat also said to the king of Israel, oh, first seek the counsel of the Lord. We'll get to that last part in a minute. I found that interesting too. Now, remember, Ahab was the king of Israel, the northern king. They were living in sin. Ahab and Israel were living in sin at the time. Ahab's wife Jezebel not only encouraged Baal, but raised up prophets of Baal. And not only raised up prophets of Baal, she would have the prophets of God killed evil woman. Jehoshaphat allied himself 
with Ahab through marriage. If you read the other scriptures and, and, and read on, it was Jehoshaphat's son that married Ahab's daughter. And so they allied themselves together through that marriage. Ahab then, the king of Israel living in sin, he asks Jehoshaphat, now that we have this alignment, now that we're friends again, will you help me take back uh, Gilead, uh, the, uh, Ramoth Gilead? You see, Jehoshaphat responds, Basically, Ramoth-Gilead was territory that Israel once had that the Syrians had taken. Ahab had always battled the Syrians, and the Syrians had taken over some territory from Israel, Ramoth-Gilead. So now, he couldn't get that back by himself. So now that him and Jehoshaphat are, are, are making peace, he asks Jehoshaphat, will you join me to take back Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat responds by saying, I as you are, my people as your people, we will join you in war. Oh, doesn't that sound all nice? You see, we are one big happy family, aren't we? You see, blood is thicker than water now, isn't it? Remember, they are kind of family. They are all children and descendants of Abraham. But the kingdom is split at this point because sin. Now, point number one is this. Fasting helps us, remember, in 20, chapter 20, uh, Jehoshaphat calls for a fast. I think it's his way of repenting for what had taken place in chapters 18 and 19. So fasting helps us renounce our natural tendency. I believe it is a natural tendency because we have a sinful nature about us. Fasting helps us renounce our natural tendency to be unequally yoked or unequally aligned. I'll add another one. Emotionally attached. Maybe that applies a little bit better. Fasting helps us renounce our natural tendency to be emotionally attached to this world. What's the difference between repentance and renouncing? Repentance is a turning away. I'm turning away from sin. I'm going this way now. I'm running towards God. The cross before me, the world behind me. But a renouncing takes it one step further. Renouncing is a formal declaration of abandonment and rejection. I'm not only just take, turning away to go this way, I'm rejecting that. I'm denouncing that. And so renouncing, uh, fasting helps us renounce our natural tendency to be unequally yoked. So Jehoshaphat not only aligned himself with someone against God, he contributed to an agenda that was against God's will. God was bringing judgment to Ahab and to all of those in Israel who embraced Baal. If you read the rest of the story, we'll read some of it, but we won't read all of it, so I encourage you, if you want to you know, read in your devotions, 2 Chronicles 17, 18, 19, and 20, go ahead and do that. But if you read the rest of the story, God was planning on using the Syrians to kill Ahab in battle. And indeed, that's exactly what was happening. It's actually a fascinating story. Ahab thought he would pull one over on God. So he disguises himself as one of the commoners. He, he doesn't dress as king, you know. And so he, he's just kind of this commoner among the men. And after the battle, it was kind of over. And 
it says someone's stray arrow was released by accident, and it hit Ahab, and he died. So God's will is going to be accomplished. You can't pull one over on God. So that's a fascinating part of the story. We don't really get into that today. But if, again, God was planning on using this battle with, uh, you know, a, between Ahab and the Syrians to kill Ahab, to bring judgment upon him. And indeed, that's what happened. But by aligning himself with Ahab, Jehoshaphat was now working against God's will. He was interfering with what God was allowing to happen. He was interfering with what God has planned. Listen, I realize it's an extremely hard time to know what God's will is these days for our country. It's extremely hard to know right now what God is doing in our country. Is God specifically causing this to happen, or is he simply hands-off allowing it to happen? You see, is there, and there's a difference. Is, there, is this the judgment of God upon our country, or is, his, or is this his way of setting us up for a mighty miracle, the way he did like in Moses' day, when he hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he can bring all these plagues, all these miraculous powers, and he says, for a specific reason, so that the world may know that I am God. You see, what is God doing? Why is he doing it? It's hard to know these days. Fasting helps us tune in to God and help us, helps us know what God is doing. But it doesn't always. God doesn't always reveal his will to us, even through prayer and fasting. Sometimes God doesn't tell us what he's doing. Sometimes he simply asks us to trust him and trust him alone. But in the times when he doesn't reveal what he's doing, in those times that he leaves it as a mystery to us, prayer and fasting will keep us from becoming unequally yoked or unequally aligned or emotionally attached to something or someone against God and God's will. When we're not completely sure what God's will is, prayer and fasting helps us and keeps us from emotionally attaching ourselves to something or someone that may not be exactly what God is doing. Because again, it's hard to know sometimes what God is doing, so what do we align ourselves with? What do we attach ourselves with? What, is, what do we fight? What cause do we fight? Fasting helps us. Perhaps and think about this. Again, another question I, I wrestled this week. Why did Jehoshaphat ever align himself with Ahab in the first place? He knew Ahab was, was sinful. He knew Ahab was the source of all this idolatry within Israel. Why then would he allow his son to marry Ahab's daughter? Ahab's daughter, who's her mom? Jezebel. Why would someone of faith allow that to happen? Well, for, you know, unity's sake, maybe. You know, remember, the two kingdoms have been at odds ever since they split, and maybe, as you know, God had promised that he would unite them once again, and they would be one strong nation once again, and maybe Jehoshaphat just felt like, well, this was his opportunity to help that along. He misinterpreted, perhaps, how God's promise would play out. Perhaps it was because, well, his son needed a wife. <laughs> You know, and it was common practice for a king's son to marry a king's daughter. It's common practice. That's what we do, you see. 
And so maybe it was just so widely accepted in the culture of the day that he didn't think nothing of it, you see. Wow. Ouch. The scripture doesn't explain why Jehoshaphat saw this alignment as a positive thing. The author of Chronicles writes in such a way as to suggest, yeah, it's not a good thing. It turned out bad. Everybody knows it. By the way, the, the author of Chronicles, we think, is Ezra. Many, many, many years later, Ezra was, remember, he was bringing a remnant of Jews back to Jerusalem. He wanted to reattach the people to their history. Many, many years people forgot. So he writes a history book, or he chronicles their history in the book of Chronicles. So we think, we're not sure, but it's, it's pretty sure that Ezra is writing this many, many years back, many, many years later. The author of, of Chronicles, we think it's Ezra, he's writing in a such a way, hey, we all know that didn't turn out right. You see, it was not a good thing for Jehoshaphat to align himself with Ahab. And at the end of the story, in fact, it says this, 2 Chronicles 19, verse 2. Jehu, the seer, or the prophet, the son of Hanani, went out to meet him, Jehoshaphat, and said to the king, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, the wrath of the Lord is upon you. Ouch. This is what happened as a result of Jehoshaphat, this godly king, aligning himself with Ahab. So, why would a person of faith today ever come to the point of supporting someone or something that was against God or against God's will? Well, I think that perhaps the ways of this world have become so common practice today that we don't realize we are aligning ourselves with something or someone against God. Remember, it was just common practice for a king's son to marry a king's daughter. It's just the way, it's what's done. It's just, it's just, it's in our culture. What's wrong with it? And it wasn't always wrong. God, you know, allowed that to happen sometimes. But in this case, it was wrong. But it was common practice. You see, I grew up in the 80s, and my youth pastor constantly I remember, always spoke about being unequally yoked. And typically, he was talking about us dating non-Christians. Don't be unequally yoked. But he would also tie it in many times with what music we listened to, what friends we hung out, hung out with, uh, the shows that we watched on TV, or movies we watched. Don't, don't be unequally yoked. I wish he would have used that term that I kind of am gravitating to, these emotionally attached. You say, oh, I can take it or leave it. But yet, somehow, we're emotionally attached to a lot of common practices in our culture that I believe God is saying, eh, I think maybe you're a little attached too much to these things. And I think that's what God is revealing. I know that's what he's been revealing to me these past few weeks. You see, teenagers are easily attracted to different aspects of our culture that may not be pleasing to God. I know because I was a teenager, I remember. As adults, I think politics has become that part of culture where we need to be careful with. 
Let me see. Today, politics plays a part in every aspect of our society. Not one part of society is absent from it. It's sad, to be honest. It has infiltrated the movies we watch and the shows that we watch, the actors that we once revered and admired. It plays out in our sports teams and athletes we root for. I don't want to see that. I don't want to hear. Poor Bill Belichick. He lost Tom Brady last year, and now he had to give up the Presidential Medal of Honor because of what some of his players might have thought. It has infiltrated every aspect of our country. It's written into the lyrics of the songs that hit the top charts, the top of the charts. It is unescapable in any kind of entertainment we enjoy. Social media, the big tech, you name an aspect of culture that in and of itself is not so bad, and you'll see that politics has just penetrated and infiltrated. It plays out even in our healthcare system. How sad, to be honest. Politics is in every aspect of our society, and unfortunately, I think maybe it has infiltrated then many people of faith. Today, I think there are a lot of Christians more aligned with a political party than they are with a church. Ouch. I think maybe there are a lot of Christians out there more aligned with social causes than they are with God's will. Ouch again. I think maybe there are a lot of Christians more aligned or emotionally attached with the laws of man than they are with the words of God. Well, why do I say this? Well, because I've seen many Christians who are more passionate for a president than they are for God's presence. We will yell and scream at a MAGA rally, and I enjoy them too. But does our worship, I mean, it barely breaks a whisper. I know, ouch. I've seen many Christians more, deter more determined to advance a political or a social agenda than they are to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, we, we support missionaries that preach the gospel around the world. and We support our evangelists that spread the gospel around our nation. But we have a hard time speaking with our neighbor. You see, but we'll put the lawn sign, MAGA. You see, we'll fly the flag. Everybody knows our political party. You see, listen, I'm not trying to be Debbie Downer here. I'm not trying to browbeat us. Lord knows I have served many pastors. All I did was browbeat everybody. This was hard for me, you know, to, to kind of, this part of my message was hard for me to, to, to kind of figure out what I was going to do. But I think we as a church are pretty much, you know, talking about our church, I think we're pretty much aligned with God's will. However, that being said, I have felt God's conviction in my personal life these past few weeks. You see, because I have mourned a lot for the state of the country these past few weeks. And God had to say, how, when was the last time you mourned like that? Who? <laughs> 
for lost souls. But the state of the church. And I had some repenting to do. It's okay to be involved in our community. It's okay to be involved in the political process. God has given us the privilege of being able to participate in that area in our country. And I encourage it. I want to participate. I vote. I, I'll go to the rallies. I, I'll do all I can. But where does our ultimate alignments lie? Where does our ultimate passions play out? Are we more emotionally attached to the political outcome of our country than we are for the eternal outcome of lost souls? Point number two, I'll move on. Fasting helps us. Again, number one, renounce our natural tendency to be unequally yoked or emotionally attached to the things of this world. Point number two, fasting helps us renounce our natural tendency to spiritually justify carnal acts. Listen, I don't preach a lot of messages like this. You know, I like leaving church feeling good. But we're in a time of prayer and fasting. Weeping and mourning, as the scripture puts it, for the state of the church. And so I'm not looking for conviction necessarily to come on us, unless it has to. Of course, I think it does to a point, always. But I want us to see, perhaps, a little bit of the state of the church across our country. Fasting helps us renounce our natural tendency to spiritually justify carnal acts. 2 Chronicles 18, verses 3 and 4. It says, Ahab, king of Israel, asked Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, will you go with me against Ramoth-Gilead? Jehoshaphat replied, I am as you are, and my people as you, your people. We will join you in this war. And then he says this, But Jehoshaphat also said to the king of Israel, First seek the counsel of the Lord. Jehoshaphat had a check in his spirit, as we call it, about what Ahab was suggesting. Something doesn't seem right. Maybe we need to pray about it. So then 2 Chronicles 18, 5 and 6. So the king of Israel brought together the prophets, 400 men, and asked them, shall we go to war against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? Go, they answered, for God will give it into the king's hand. But Jehoshaphat asked, is there not a prophet of the Lord here whom we can inquire of? There was still something not right. There's still a check in his spirit. 400 prophets spoke into the king's life. And they said, and said that they would be successful against the Syrians. But Jehoshaphat again, still, I don't know. if they, let's, let's ask someone else. One more prophet, a prophet of the Lord. Prophet from Judah, perhaps. We need to learn that sometimes a check in our spirit is more correct than a prophetic spoken word. You see, prophecies are meant to confirm what the Holy Spirit is already speaking to you about. It's not meant to be a crystal ball revealing the future to us. That's why it's important to stay in tune with the Spirit. So let's read on. 2 Chronicles 18, verses 6 and 7. But Jehoshaphat asked, Is there not a prophet of the Lord here who, can, who we can inquire of? The king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat, Well, there is still one man through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him. 
because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. He is Micaiah, son of Imla. The king should not say that, Jehoshaphat replied. This is a little funny, this portion, I think. Again, a third time, Jehoshaphat hears something that is not right. This king complaining about one of the Lord's prophets. He's always just prophesying something bad. I don't like him. I hate him. Jehoshaphat, again, being a man of God, says, you really shouldn't talk like that. Again, it was a check in his spirit. But he, that's all he dealt with. The worst he said, well, you really shouldn't talk like that. Jehoshaphat, it should have been a red flag. Hey, I need to get out of here. This is not right. This is not of God, and I need to be far from it. But he didn't. He kept on. 2 Chronicles 18, 8 through 17, it's a little too long to, to put up there, so if you don't have your Bibles open, just listen. It says this, So the king of Israel called one of his officials and said, Bring Micaiah, son of Imlar, at once. Dressed in their royal robes, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones at the threshing floor by the entrance to the gate of Samaria, with all the prophets prophesying before them. Now Zedekiah, son of Kamil, had made iron, uh, made iron horns, and he declared, This is what the Lord says, with these you will, have, you will gore the Arameans until they are destroyed. All the other prophets were prophesying the same thing. Attack Ramoth Gilead and be victorious, they said, for the Lord will give it into the king's hands. The messenger who had gone out to summon Micaiah said to him, Look, as one man, the, the, all the other prophets are predicting success for the king. Let your word agree with theirs and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As surely as the Lord lives, I can Tell him only what my God says. So when he arrived, the king asked him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? Attack and be victorious, he answered, for they will be given into your hand. The king said to him, how many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Even King Ahab knew he was just, Micaiah was just telling him what he wanted to hear. You see, then Micaiah answered, Listen, I saw all of Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, These people have no master. Let each one go home in peace. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Didn't I tell you he never prophesies anything good about me, but only bad? You see, the point of this long kind of chapter is that time and time again, something just didn't sit right with Jehoshaphat's spirit. But for some reason, he continued to ignore it in the name of peace between the two, in the name of, 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 of unity, in the name of common practice. He finally hears from a prophet who isn't afraid to speak truth to power. But despite all of this, Jehoshaphat and Ahab proceed with the plan. See, sometimes we become so aligned with a cause Sometimes we become so invested in what we think God's will is. Sometimes we become so married to how it's supposed to play out that we ignore the checks in our spirit. We find ways to justify, even to spiritually justify, what we want, what we want to do, what we want to see and be a part of. Jehoshaphat and Ahab chose to believe the 400 prophets 
over the one. Jehoshaphat knew something was wrong right from the start, but thought that if one of the prophets would sign off on it, well, then it would be okay. You see, our natural tendency as human beings is to want to justify what we do. We don't do it. We do it because we want to do it, but then we need to almost explain why we want to do it, so we have to justify it. That's our natural tendency. Unfortunately, we sometimes spiritually justify something or someone just because of the alignments that we have for it, uh, the alignments or the attachment we have to it. Let's be careful calling something God's will that God really hasn't confirmed as his will. Let's be careful aligning ourselves with a plan or a promise that God really hasn't revealed how it was going to play out. We can hold to the promises of God. But if we think we know how it's going to play out, he often surprises us. Let's be careful not to spiritually justify our actions or the actions of someone else that doesn't exactly sit right in our spirit. God has placed the same Holy Spirit in us that he has placed in, in any prophet. And I'm not saying that there's no need for the prophets. That is a New Testament principle laid out for us by the Apostle Paul, the office of prophet. There is a role for the office of prophet. There is a role for the gift of prophecy for the New Testament believers. But let's not ignore the checks in our spirit when it comes to the events playing out before us. Point number three. Again, fasting helps us, one, renounce our natural tendency to be unequally yoked or unequally aligned. It helps us renounce our natural tendency to spiritually justify our uh, carnal acts. And number three, our natural tendency, it helps us renounce our natural tendency to obey a lying spirit. This one's a little hard. It's a little hard to understand, too. Second Chronicles 18, verses 14 to 24. When we arrived, the king asked him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? Attack and be victorious, he answered, for they will be given into your hands. The king said to him, how many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Then Micaiah answered, I saw all of Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, these people have no master. Let each one go home in peace. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, didn't I tell you that he never prophesied anything good about me, but only bad? Micaiah continued though. He says, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all of the hosts of heaven standing on his right and standing on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab, king of Israel, into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? Again, this was what God wanted to happen because he wanted Ahab to really be killed in this battle. One suggested and, uh, this and another suggested that. This is God talking to his heavenly host around his throne. And he says, one is suggesting this and another that. Finally, a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord, and said, I will entice him. By what means, the Lord asked, I will go and be a lying spirit in the mouths of all his prophets, he said. You will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord. Go and do it. 
So now the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouths of these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. Then Zedekiah, son of uh, Kenaniah, went up and slapped Micaiah in the face. That's what, you see, that, that's, you don't like a prophecy you like, just slap him in the face. I don't know, you see. Then Zedekiah, son of Kenaniah, went up and slapped Micaiah in the face. Which way did the Spirit from the Lord go when he went from me to speak to you, he asked. Micaiah replied, you will find out on that day, uh, on the day you go to hide uh, in, uh, I'm sorry, you will find out on the day you go to hide in an inner room. So now, again, this is one a little, little harder to understand. It's kind of like trying to understand when we were talking about Moses and perimeter of promise, why would God harden Pharaoh's heart before he released them? Why would he make things worse before he made them better? He specifically hardened Pharaoh's heart. If he was going to do anything, why didn't he just soften Pharaoh's heart so that they would be just let go. No, he made things worse. It's hard to understand. It's the sovereignty of God. Why would God use a lying spirit to, to deceive all of his prophets? If he wanted Ahab dead, well then why didn't he just cause a fatal sickness to come upon him? There's judgment upon him. You see, because of the sin and because of the idolatry and what he was doing. Well, I don't know why he chose a lying spirit. God seemed to want this battle to go on, and, want, and he, in this battle, Ahab was, would lose his life. And this is indeed what happened. But God did not want Jehoshaphat to be a part of this battle. But Jehoshaphat ignored the checks in his spirit, and he continued to, to be a part of it. Now, God protected Jehoshaphat. He, he ended up going back home safe and protected, but it was still disobedience, and it didn't turn out well for him after. So again, I don't know why God allowed a lying spirit to come upon his prophets. Who am I to suggest that God should do it this way and not that way? And I'm not suggesting that this is what's happening in the prophetic realm today. I'm, you know, I don't know because this is very difficult to understand. I don't, I don't quite understand it. Only time will tell, really, if, if, if they're right or not. And we won't know if God sent another lying spirit to them or not until really until we're in heaven and we can ask God, Hey, God, you know, 2020, what's the deal? You see. Have you ever been so invested in something that you feel like there's no turning around? I mean, I think, guys, we're pretty famous for this. I don't need my GPS. I'll find it. And now an hour later, I'm just too invested in this to put on that GPS right now. I will not put the GPS on. I'll find it. Sometimes we connect ourselves, we align ourselves, we emotionally attach ourselves to something that we just have a hard time letting go of. Jehoshaphat told Ahab that he would be with him in this war. And I, but I think Jehoshaphat, when looking at it, I think Jehoshaphat was trying to help the king, King Ahab, to come to his own conclusion not to do this. He says, well, maybe you should inquire the Lord. So Ahab calls the 400 prophets. And they say, go ahead and go. And Jehoshaphat says, well, maybe we need to find one more prophet. You see. And then Jehoshaphat says, well, you really shouldn't talk that way. And I think he was kind of beating around the bush to try to help Ahab come to the conclusion, maybe you shouldn't do this. But he, he was too weak in his faith. He was too weak to, to, to stand up and, and, and say what he really felt and to do what really 
God was calling him to do. Well, is this what we're seeing play out before our eyes today in, in Christians across this country? Are they too weak to do the right thing? Are, are they so invested, so emotionally attached to something, someone, that it's just too late to turn around? You see, I'm, I'm all in at this point. I'd admit that I'm wrong, which is really just a pride thing. Is this what we see, again, happening in our country? Uh, maybe. There's certainly some of it in me that I've had to take to the Lord this week. Let me say this in closing. I don't think there are Jehoshaphats among us in our church today. Emotionally attaching ourselves and investing in something that's against God. But I don't know. Perhaps in the quietness of your own heart, you can see yourself right where Jehoshaphat was or has been, at least a little part of him in us today. I don't know. I know I've, spent, I've seen parts of Jehoshaphat in me this week. I do believe, however, that the state of the church across our country may be in a similar situation. Have people of faith today aligned themselves emotionally attached themselves too closely with the things of this world. Things that may not be bad in and of themselves, but things that nevertheless are not as important as God's plans. What would God rather see? Would, would, let, me, let me put it this way. I, I thought about this, and, and it's not on my notes because I, I, I hesitated even sharing this thought with you. Would God remove the freedoms we have in our country if it meant more souls saved? Oh, God. What's more important to him? I've been praying that we can see both. I'm praying that, that the church would, would, would get so passionate about souls. We wouldn't care what happens as much in our country we would just win souls, advance God's kingdom, have people of faith spiritually justified their alignment to some of these things in the name of Jesus, when in reality, they are simply carnal acts. Now, carnal doesn't necessarily mean sinful. Yeah, sometimes it does. It's sinful act. But carnal simply means of the flesh, of the world. Things that are not in and of themselves bad. We can be a part of the political process. We can choose a party. We can choose a cause. I mean, but have we spiritually justified how emotionally attached we are some of these things? Have people of faith been so invested in temporal things that they are basically lying to themselves? Because that's what was happening to Jehoshaphat. He, he was ignoring the checks in his spirit. So in other words, he was lying to himself about what really was going on. Have we become so invested in temporal things that we're lying to ourselves as to how important they really are? Second Chronicles 20, verse 4 says this. Alarmed Jehoshaphat, we read it earlier, 
Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all of Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Listen to the rest of the story now. Verses 12 through 17. It says, O our God, will you not judge them? Jehoshaphat's praying to God against his enemies. For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. What a great place to be on, at, to be honest, in Christ. God, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Is God bringing the church back to that point? Because we have tried everything under the sun. And we like to try this, and we like to try that, and there's always something to do, and there's always a protest, and there's always a this, and always a that, and always a that. Again, it's not bad in and of themselves. But is God bringing us to the point, the church I'm talking about, Looking up, saying, God, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. I think I'll not read the rest of that scripture because that's really where it needs to land. Fasting is not only a renouncing of the natural. It is a renouncing of the natural to invoke the supernatural power of God. God wants us to experience victory in our lives, victory over the enemy, victory over sin. He wants this country to experience it once again as well. There first must be fasting and prayer. There must be a humbling of ourselves. There must be that point where we look up to God and says, we don't know what else to do, but our eyes are upon you. Fasting helps us renounce publicly abandon and reject our natural tendency to be emotionally attached, unequally aligned with the things of this world. It helps us renounce our natural tendency to spiritually justify carnal acts. And it helps us renounce our natural tendency to obey a lying spirit even if that spirit remains in us. We say, well, I don't know if the lying spirit's taken over the prophets. No, don't, don't look at them before you look at yourself. Am I lying to myself about how important these things really are? You see, I encourage you, if you haven't spent time fasting and praying this week, I understand medically, sometimes you're just not able to fast food. I understand I would, any length of time I would consult a doctor for sure. But give something up this week and spend time praying and fasting for the state of the church in our nation because if this nation is going to turn around, it's going to start with the church. If it starts with anything else, it's doomed because it's temporal. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, <laughs> we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. The author and the finisher of our faith, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. God, we are somewhere in the middle of this, and we don't know what to do. Our emotions, they deceive us. Our alignments 
are blinding us. And so we humble ourselves before you. We ask you to open our eyes. May we have ears to hear. Oh God, may we no longer ignore the checks in our spirit so that we might once again return to that place where we hear you clearly, where we see clearly what you're calling us to do, clearly what your will is. Lord, we stand here in a way, the same way that Jehoshaphat stood in chapter 20, looking back at the past few months and asking you to forgive us Asking you to help us to look forward now. Asking you to reveal to us how we can advance your kingdom. How we can be a part of seeing lost souls saved. Not just through church programs and ministries, but by talking to the neighbor across the fence. Sending an email making a call to that unsaved loved one. By humbling ourselves before people we have offended. Lord Jesus, we look to you because we don't know what else to do. We ask now that we would begin to see your supernatural power take over where we have left off. We ask for victory in our lives. We ask for victory in our church, in our communities. We ask for a mighty supernatural victory across our country. May revival sweep this land. May a great awakening sweep the globe. May people return to you in your ways, we ask that we would be a part of it. We pray this in your name. Amen. Hello, everyone. This is Pastor James. I hope you enjoyed today's message. My prayer is that you would always experience all that God has for you. New Franklin Assembly exists to advance God's kingdom, to encourage God's people, and to serve our community. If you're in the Chambersburg area, we would love to have you join us for a live service. For more information, please visit our website at www.newfranklinag.org. Thank you. God bless.